The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. And welcome back to Herd Tell. Thank you so much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time, as we continue to do what we always try to do. We're going to turn down the noise of the news cycle, talk about some things that really matter, get to the information we need so that we can better discern the times we live in. Got two really good guests today, uh, both returning friends to the program, Amanda Griffiths is back. We're going to talk a little bit about labor, how the union situation with Starbucks and the cross streams of big labor, big government, and the workers that sometimes get between those two things and sometimes get squished, how that's been playing out. Also, she's been teaching a class to first-generation college students learning the political system and political science. It's a really interesting perspective. And we rehash one of our favorite episodes we've ever done with her, about the American epic. Also, R.J. Lehman's joining us. Uh, we're going to remember Jimmy Buffett uh, as a Floridian, as a fan of the music. Uh, he's going to be talking about that, how the culture of post-World War II Florida and the boomers and the parrot heads, how that actually crosses a lot of cultural streams we need to touch in on. Also going to end on an interesting note. There has been a debate about rotisserie chicken. The Washington Post has produced a list, and you may be shocked at who is number one on that list of major grocery chains, who has the best rotisserie chicken. You know we love to talk about our food here. But first, uh, let's talk about this. Um, we have another verdict in the January 6th trials, and this is kind of the big one. Um, Henry, Henry Enrique Torrio. Uh, frankly, I don't care if that's pronounced right or not because it was a despicable human being. He has been found guilty. He was the former leader of the Proud Boys he has been sentenced to 22 years in prison. The feds were asking for 20. His own attorneys were asking for 15. The judge got kind of in the middle of that a little bit. Uh, with the 22 years and the months and months of uh, supervision afterwards, he will be uh, in some form of custody for quite a long time. Let's be very clear, because we've been talking about this over and over again. You have to parse out what happened on January 6th, the rioting, the, the political process, what was going on. I know we have the court case with uh, former President Trump's involvement and all that. 
these court cases, there's been over a thousand of them now, closer to 1,100 of them. We know exactly what happened. And I'm going to repeat myself because we got to keep repeating ourselves because the online folks and the very online and the very political folks keep wanting to not get this point across, and it's vital. We know what happened because this has been adjudicated in the courts of law. Juries appears, and no, D.C. juries aren't any more uh, biased than anybody else's. That's nonsense. Don't listen to that. How do we know that? Well, because a lot of these people, even the ones that were found guilty, didn't even get jail time. They just got fines or probation or whatever. Some charges they were found innocent on. If you go through these court cases, the thousands of them, it's all public record. Just read it for yourself. Don't take talking heads words for it. The people that just got caught up in it or just walked through the Capitol or was just there and didn't do anything bad, they didn't get any major charges. They got nuisance charges, things like this. So the vast majority of people either got caught up in it, wrong place, wrong time, got caught up in it, just got went along, didn't do anything bad, and they were charged accordingly or not charged at all. Then you had a group of people there caught up in it and did stuff they shouldn't have done, vandalism, violence, things like that, and they got charged accordingly, and they got more severe sentences. But then inside of that group, there was a small cabal of people, about 20 to 30, somewhere in that neighborhood, who really did think they were going to overthrow the United States government. Idiotically, they had no chance of doing that. But they really thought it, or they thought they were at least going to damage the process, either physically or by intimidation, to stop the vote count. That's what these Proud Boys were doing. That's what the Oath Keepers were doing. The leader of the Oath Keepers previously had the harshest sentence, and now Tario has surpassed that. The judge talked about it at length in the sentencing. Tario did apologize to law enforcement in his um, statement before sentencing, but before that, he never showed any regret. He never said anything other than he would have done it again. He said publicly over and over again he would do it again. He is pictured with multiple office holders you would recognize. This is somebody that was ingrained in the MAGA circles, the right-wing circles, the Republican circles. This is somebody that had power. This is somebody that had influence. And this is somebody that on January 6th really thought his guys, his troops, his soldiers, his proud boys were going to be the tip of the spear for this. Now, people are going to holler because he wasn't physically in the Capitol when this all happened. That's not what he was charged with anyway. He was charged with planning. He was charged with being a leader. And that's why he got the heaviest and hardest sentences. No, this isn't a miscarriage of justice. Justice worked just fine here. It worked a little slowly, actually, when you consider it. This is by far the harshest penalty, probably will be the harshest penalty laid down for any of these folks. And it was still lighter than what the maximum could have been. And if you look at the court case and you read the documentation with the terrorist charges escalation that the judge declined to bring really heavily, it could have been a lot worse. Probably got off light. All in all, Tario probably got exactly what he deserved to get for this sentencing. Now, some people online are going to balk at that or buck back or say, no, no, no. Listen, we know this. He was a leader. He wanted to cause havoc to the United States government and the electoral system. He was correctly charged. He was found guilty, and he has been sentenced. If there's any injustice here, it's that all those popular figures that got their pictures taken with him and all the sitting office holders that coddled and enabled him and all the PACs that thought that he and his goons and thugs would be useful to him and all the politicians, office holders, PACs, political party in the Republican Party, 
all the little MAGA online sites, all the online cheering fans that thought they were cool because they were going to be some kind of paramilitary unit or whatever they thought they were going to be. The only injustice here is not more of them had to pay a penalty. Yeah, you can say he got scapegoated as the figurehead, but them's the brakes. You want to be the leader? You're the leader. You're the leader of something that was very bad for our country, and you were charged for it. If there's any injustice at all, it's that the people that enabled him aren't sitting in the cell with him. But this will do. Justice was done. The system worked. And now Tario will spend a very long time in prison where he can think about what he did. I hope he reforms his life. We will see. We do know, though, that the person he did all this on their behest, Donald Trump and his organization and his most adding followers, haven't learned a darn thing. They still think this was all just fine. And that, among many other reasons, is why the Tarios of the world needed to be convicted and found guilty and put in prison for a very long time. And now they have been. More Hertel right after this. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, she's one of our favorites to talk to because we can go deep and far afield. As my father would say, teaching classes on various topics. My mom would look at him and go, he's going to chase a rabbit. That's what that means. Amanda Griffiths, how are you, ma'am? Great to have you back on the program. I'm doing wonderfully, and it's great to be back. How are you doing, Andrew? Good, good, good. I We were trying to prep this show, and then you just kept hitting me with stuff I want to talk about. Let's start here, though. Um, you wrote a piece about labor. It's in town hall. We're going to link to it. Talks talks about Starbucks, but you could apply this to a lot of the service sector industry. This goes to just a core principle kind of thing and how you view the world, because I think how people view this is how they come at it. And then you can't really get them off it. I'm not against unions in theory. I'm not. Look, I'm from West Virginia. If anybody needed a union, it was the coal miners. My God, I'm not against unions. I'm not against people that want to be in a union. I'm not against people that don't want to be in a union. I think you should have both options. I'm, I would not cross the picket line personally. I'd just rather not be in a union. That's just me. I have some conflicting views on this. I'll be honest about it. Where I have concerns and your piece starts tiptoeing on this territory and it gets right up to the edge on it because this is going to start happening. I get concerned when the unions are so busy fighting with the government and the unions are so busy fighting with corporations, the workers get left out of the equation. I see too much of that. I see, we saw with the railroad strike, union and government kind of got together and the worker kind of got screwed. Here, we see unions and people that honestly want a union to try to make their lives better, but then it becomes union versus corporation and then the worker kind of gets left out. 
that's where I see a bit of a problem with some of the service service sector stuff, whether it's a Starbucks or anything else is I'm fine if they want to try to do a union, but unions are not all created equal. There's good ones. There's bad ones like everything else. And it's all in, is their priority their workers or is the priority fighting the bigs and prov- keeping the union going? Cause that's a, that's a big distinction we need to start with before we get to the next part. Right. You encapsulated it really well, Andrew. That is the problem. And this is why I try to differentiate between big labor and mega unions. We're talking about, uh, in this case, something like Workers United, Uh, Starbucks. A lot of Starbucks stores are affiliated with Workers United. Uh, Workers United serves as the union representative. The issue with this is that when you have these mega unions, they represent such a, a, a sometimes random and diverse swath of industries. And it's so centralized. There's no way you can represent the interests of the individual worker. It's just like with governments and corporations, quite frankly. The bigger and bigger and more centralized a, an institution becomes, the more distant it becomes from individual workers, individual constituents, whatever we're talking about, the more centralized, the more of a conglomerate something becomes, the more difficult it is to represent those discrete needs. That's what we're seeing with something like Workers United, with a lot of teachers union politics, with something like, uh, in, in various cases, United Auto Workers, which can represent and, and do bargaining for for groups very far afield. It's, uh, you you just said at the start of our show, groups very far afield of of auto workers, and it gets really hard to speak to the needs of someone like you or me. Yeah, Amanda Griffith joining us. When you get into things like the National Labor Relations Board, on top of it. Bureaucratic control usually doesn't mean good things for the little guy, especially uniform bureaucratic control. And again, I'm not anti-union, but there's, to me, a lot. And when I look through history, there's kind of two different versions of unions. There's the ground up. The workers are getting together because they need the representation and not that you can't have outside help doing it. And you got to have outside help to get that done. Then there's what's happening lately in the last 30, 40 years. You mentioned things like the auto workers union. I can look at the United Mine Workers from back where I'm from. You can pick any Teamsters. We just saw what happened with Yellow Freight. They got a great contract with UPS, but 30,000 some people, 22,000 of them union at Yellow. They're all out of a job because the union and the company couldn't coexist. The top down model is a problem because unions have never been smaller in membership, their membership's shrinking, there's not enough chairs left at that table, they're starving for money and funds and they need union dues and members to perpetuate themselves so they start going and looking for places where they can get to. And again, that's not always a bad thing, but those are two different models to how union and how labor, and it affects the relationship between those workers and the union and the company. I, I'm remembering when, when um, one of the German automakers first went into the American South, and then they, they were like, well, of course, we're going to have a union because they're used to European style labor unions. And they were shocked at how adversarial it was. They weren't used to it because it's a different beast here. Do we need to have a conversation that those relationships 
between a union, between a company, between the union, the company, and the government, those need to be more productive, less adversarial, less parasitic, less political. Is there any way to do that or at least talk about it, or are we just too far down the road? There are definite policy changes that need to happen, and this is what this piece looks at. And I apologize for anyone who hates dad jokes. <laughs> I grew up with a lot of dad jokes, and so there are a lot of coffee puns in this article. It's titled, Biden's NLRB wants to roast Starbucks over labor allegations, but it's workers who are getting burned. That encapsulates it. Uh, that's, that sort of says it, where the relationship, the union needs to represent the worker, or, or in cases with teachers' unions, the union needs to represent the interests of the student. So what's happening instead with the NLRB in particular is there have been a series of changes where to get in the weeds a little bit, if a union has been authorized to act as a bargaining representative for over a year, as is the case in the Starbucks article with Workers United, for over a year without reaching a first contract, there's this stop gap, there's this exit ramp that workers can take and they can file a decertification petition. They can say, we actually don't want this union to represent us anymore. We don't have a contract yet. We're petitioning to get this union decertified as our representative. That kickstarts a democratic process bulwark of workplace democracy right here, these decertification elections. The workers vote. They put it to a vote amongst themselves once the petition is approved. And then they take a vote. Do we want this union? Do we not? Either the union stays or the union goes. Here's the problem. Unions can file what are called blocking charges against any decertification petition. Theoretically, yes, they have to have cause, but there's very little oversight as to what that cause is. That kicks the decision to the National Labor Relations Board or regional affiliates. And the regional affiliates, the bureaucrats, make the call. Do these workers get to get a choice? And in Starbucks' case, the decertification petitions have been struck down by bureaucrats. So that flies in the face of what unions are supposed to stand for, which is worker choice. Maybe the Starbucks workers just want another alternative for a union. Maybe some of them want to represent themselves. Maybe some of them don't like the way that Workers United is going about doing things. There are so many reasons why you would file this decertification petition. Ostensibly, Starbucks Corporation has been misbehaving on a national level and bargaining in bad faith. But that doesn't really give you justification to punish the individual workers. Because if Starbucks is wrong for denying choice to workers, if Starbucks is wrong for engaging in, uh, you know, in, engaging in, in unfair labor practices and denying worker agency, what makes it okay for the NLRB to do the same thing? What makes it okay for unions to ask the NLRB to help them do the same thing? That's where we get to this problem. It, this, this bureaucratic capture of, of the NLRB by big unions and big labor really needs to change. The union business model is dying. We see that in a dwindling membership. 
The reason it's dying is because unions will not get on board and adjust the way that they approach the power and the value of the individual worker. They're rehashing this old stale narrative that very fortunately is not true anymore. Workers have power. Workers have value. You are valuable because of who you are and what you can bring to a job. You as an individual. Unions do not like that because that flies in the face of what their business model is. They've effectively become what the corporations that they rightly railed against in the past used to be. Yeah, Amanda Griffiths joining us. Let's switch gears for just a second because I was just enthralled with what you were telling me. As you teach and glide amongst the groves of academe, you've been busy molding young minds. But I love how you explain this, but you got to teach a class this summer. It goes a little bit to what we're talking about labor, the new generation, how people view their own self-worth and that sort of thing. Look, if you're going to talk politics and culture, when you first go to college or first go into the workforce, those are life-changing things that greatly affect how you view culture and politics. And you got to teach a class where you got some folks with some very unique perspectives on both, especially here in America. And I want you to share that because I found it fascinating and I think it's a really interesting perspective to hear about. <laughs> you, you call it you call it molding young minds. Others call it corrupting the youth when it's me. Um so I was gushing off air, and uh, I was saying that I just finished teaching a summer course, a TAing a summer course. So I led the discussion segments, which I run sort of like seminars, uh, supplement the lectures. And it was for uh, new admits um, and first-generation undergrads who were getting a head start on their freshman experience. This was... Uh, this was an absolute delight, and the course was on American politics and government. So I was saying off air, and I'll repeat this, it sounds very trite. It sounds like I'm running for office. It sounds like I'm doing some promotional video, but I mean this from the bottom of my heart. The course content was fantastic, and it was very educational, great refresher for me. But if you want to learn about what it means to be an American you look at those students. Uh, you don't look at, I mean, you, yeah, you of course look at the course content, but those students and their perspectives, the hunger that they brought to learning this subject, a lot of them came from immigrant families, their first gen, if they knew nothing about it, they had this amazing curiosity. They wanted to learn. I had students, say in weekly discussions, you know, we were reading these two pieces and one represented one side and one represented another. And I realized, I realized that I was being very harsh on one of the pieces because of my own biases. And I realized that when I read 
something that is written by someone of X political persuasion. I need to be mindful of that and check my own bias. And I thought that is something that 50 year olds don't get. <laughs> so it was, it, it was something that was so wonderful that students were discovering for themselves why this is meaningful to them. And that's why I do anything that I do I, is, is when I get to see people find why they are passionate about something, why they are curious about something and dive into it in a way that is really unique for them and productive for everyone else when they get to watch it and they get to learn from it. That's that for me is what the joy of teaching is. And I say teaching in a very holistic sense. I, I consider journalism a type of teaching as well. Yeah, I love that story because I think that's kind of a refreshing point of view that most people don't get. And they don't get to talk to a fresh set of eyes on this American thing we've all been doing and kind of inculcated in. And they don't get that fresh perspective from somebody that's new to it. And it's like looking at somebody that's seen color for the first time. And they're like, oh, this is amazing. And we're like, this is just life. And there's that disconnect. So I love talking about that story. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. I got to ask you about this because I wanted to, when we've had you on before, we did a whole episode. I'm going to link to it in case you missed it in the previous iterations of this program. We did a whole episode on the American epic and do we have one? And what we're talking about is like, you know, Homer and the Iliad, that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, Beowulf, 
What's Americans Epic? And we got some comments recently, which is amazing because somebody's cool. still watching this like a year later. People were still, there's two events in American history that really stood out. Um, the revolution you could kind of bring up, but that's us and England together. The American Civil War always comes to the top of the heap on that. And then the other one is people kept in the comments and then on the YouTube channel, commenters kept bringing up World War II over and over again. Okay. Now, now it doesn't fit because it's not American. It's fit, but if we're going to beat the Greek, the Greek epic metaphor to its last dying breath and then hit it again just to make sure, the Trojan War was everybody involved in this one thing at one time, and that's why so much of the the epicness of it was it involved all those mythic characters. It involved everybody all at once. World War II is just one of those really unique things in all of human history. Really, really did seem to involve everybody. And you had such clean cut, good guys, bad guys. Over and over again, three different people on the commenters kept bringing up World War II. It's worth discussing. But if you look at post-World War II America and you're an academic, a lot of American academic pursuits is post-World War II America. And you can argue how long that period goes. Boy, that's a whole lot of our mythology. It's a lot of our politics. It's a lot of our culture from the baby boomers to everything else. I don't know where you cut it off. A lot of people would say somewhere around 9-11 probably, and you're in a different age. That post-World War II is really, really an important slice of American history when you talk about the consciousness and the American epic and what we as Americans think of ourselves, isn't it? Yes, and I think you are looking at it from the perspective of what informs the American consciousness and and the American sense of identity. I don't see a specific story or narrative. And, you know, in fact, in in things like the Iliad, there weren't as clean cut a set of good guys and bad guys. Um, But yeah, I think you look at World War II leading into, and, you know, then there's also the Cold War, um, there's the bomb, there's all of this, things change dramatically in terms of America's sense of national identity and sense of individual identity uh, post-World War II. I don't know if I would consider that an epic just because there isn't one specific narrative that we are talking about. It's certainly is a huge, huge influence on what it means to be, someone's sense of what it means to be America. I don't think you can really explain the factors that lead into America's current national sense of identity without talking about World War II and the Cold War. Yeah, Amanda Griffiths joining us. The one that we came back to, you and I both came to this conclusion, and several of the commenters brought it up, is, of course, the American Civil War. Not that Civil War in and of itself is unique, but the American one was on a lot of levels. If you had to write a Greek epic or or whatever about it, that's probably the closest you could get. You could probably take a character like Lincoln that has that tragic arc, you know, won the war and died immediately, that kind of thing. You have the freeing of the slaves and the slavery issue. You have the North and the South. You have the combat. You have so many colorful characters. Look, there's probably more generals from the Civil War that are household names than in all of the rest of American history combined. Like, we just fascinate over this over and over again. There's so much to it. 
it was interesting. One of the commenters brought up, and, it, and I, I made the same joke myself. It's like, you know, hey, if Ken Burns does 11 and a half hours of it with David McCullough narrating it, it's automatically epic, period. That's epic. You don't get any more epic in that. Yeah. But that's part of an epic, though. It's not just the story. It's how it got told. You know, Homer survived where a lot of, you know, he wasn't the only guy writing. Like, there was a lot of that stuff written. That's the one that survived. That's you think true. of the Civil War. We also got to talk about the mediums of it. It's like, boy, the Civil War story just it just grabs parts of us and it's been retold in a manner where we're never going to get rid of it. And that's part of what brought it forward as an epic, too, because, you know, Homer wasn't the only writer in Greece, but boy, he survived everybody else. Well, and he wasn't a red. I mean, you're, you're reminding me of the fact that uh, the the that the Homeric epics were initially not written down. So I'm I'm here and I'm being a little bit uh, a bit of a stickler and saying, well, but we're not talking about a specific narrative, and it's true we're not. Uh, and I think this is my my little nitpick with with your point on the Civil War last time because I had said something like Mark Twain or Huckleberry, you know, it, uh, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer, that kind of thing. Um, and and you had brought up the Civil War, and I said, but that's not one particular piece of content. And you leave it to the academic to, to, to you know, throw that wet blanket on there. And yeah, you're bringing up a good point that this was also the way that the Homeric epics went initially. So if we're looking at epic fodder, you can certainly look at something like the Civil War. I mean, I'd go back to the found. I'd go back to the stories of the founding. I'd look, I'd go back to because I that's got diversity of opinion. That's got who are the, well, you, you get very few people thinking that the, uh, the, that King George was the good guy, but were these founding fathers flawed? Absolutely. Um, yeah. You're bringing up a good point that Homer was not really writing it down. Yeah. We have a couple of royalists to join our show from time to time that would argue that point on you, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave George. By the way, George III is actually a fascinating historical character. He's gotten a little bit of run with the Bridgerton stuff and the spinoffs, but he's actually a really fascinating character to read up on, despite the fact that we whooped him twice. Do you know, I just learned this. This is a really fun cocktail party fact. Thank you, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for teaching me this. Not directly. Uh, the planet... Uranus or Uranus was initially named George after King George. I'm not making this up. <laughs> you would have Mars, George, Neptune. You would, uh, yeah, it was, it was named after because um, it was discovered by someone whose patron was King George. And so he wanted to name it George. And that is why the moons of Uranus, Uranus, um, as sort of a, as the comedian Chuck Nice on Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast put, as a constellation prize, the moons of of that planet of Uranus are named after Shakespearean characters because they're like, we can't name the planet George, we're sorry, we just can't do it, but we can name the moons after English things, question mark. So that's your little bit of trivia for the day. And there's another good example of it is like, if you really want to get a stickler for source material, you're going to run into a problem with Shakespeare in a big yeah. hurry. Oh, so yeah. Are you going to, are you going to throw all that out too? Or are we just going to accept it for the greatness it is? Shakespeare so, was Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. Are you sure? 
I, I am almost. I, no, that's, I'll st- that's a whole nother. That's a whole nother. Give Willie his flowers, as a kid would say. He's a good guy. I love talking this big picture stuff. I've already talked to you a little bit. We're going to do a couple of deep dive things like our Machiavelli one. We're going to link to those if you missed them the first time. We had so much fun with that. Let folks know where they can keep up with you, find you, and what you got going on until we get you back on the show. Sure, yeah. I'm still a Young Voices contributor, so you can find all my work at Young Voices. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Ajax the Griff, speaking of Homeric epics. And I'm also a newly minted Young Voices social mobility fellow. That is going to be a really fun six months of writing about entrepreneurial freedom, consumer choice, and poverty alleviation. I'm really excited to tackle it. So yes, all things Young Voices, I'm still a PhD student, newly relocated from UCLA to UW-Madison. So you can find me a whole bunch of places, but follow on Twitter at Ajax the Griff and also Young Voices. Just stay away from Hector the Troll online. You'll be fine, Amanda Griffiths. <laughs> Appreciate you greatly. See you soon. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, let's go down to Florida. Let's talk a little Jimmy Buffett. Mm-hmm. Good friend RJ Lehman. He is in charge of things like the Law and mm-hmm. Economic Center. You, actually, mm-hmm. you say it because you say it better than me. You've worked with um, RSI. How do we get to be talking about parrot heads with you? <laughs> I'm a fan, uh, but more importantly, I'm a I'm a Floridian. Um, I like like many great Floridians, I am not native to here. Neither was Jimmy. Um, you know, he, he came from Pascagoula, Mississippi originally. He grew up mostly in Alabama, uh, came to Florida in the early 70s, uh, invited by Jerry Jeff Walker, who was kind of his mentor, um, and, and settled eventually in, uh, in Key West. And, and my contention uh, is that uh, Jimmy Buffett, uh, Henry Flagler, and, and Walt Disney – in fact, are the triumvirate, the three men who shaped modern Florida to be what it is today. Uh, I, I, I hold by that. I know it's a bold claim, but I, I hold that that is, that is the case. Now, Disney's the easy one because everybody, like yeah. nobody, we overuse things like visionary, mm-hmm. but, but turning a swamp outside of Orlando into the biggest tourist destination of all time is visionary. Like nobody, you talk about the land, the DeSantis stuff has brought up some of the land deals that they got. The land deals, the development, mm-hmm. like nobody had ever seen anything like that anywhere in the world. It was amazing. Yeah. What Jimmy Buffett did with Florida, like we joke about Florida, man. Now, a lot of that comes from Jimmy Buffett. But and by his own admission, he didn't really create anything new. He merged two or three things that was existing. Yeah. It was, Look, my family did that. My uncle, they, my uncle and his wife, my aunt, they moved to Florida in the late 50s. A lot of that first wave. Yeah. of the boomers that came down there, although he was actually a little older than the boomers. He was born in the late, early 30s. That wave that came down in the 50s and 60s and really made Florida what Florida is. They came from West yeah. Virginia, made their life in Clearwater. Yeah. I kind of saw this growing up in the 80s and 90s when we go to Florida. Buffett just took things like tiki culture, like mm-hmm. rednecks, 
country music, calypso music. Yep. You know, it, it, one guy, I, I forget who it was, Coy's like, not everybody can do, you know, steel drums and trombones and country mm-hmm. lyrics to make it all work. He did. He yep. was a great combiner of things and people attached to it identity wise. Yeah. I mean, I mean, why I think it's it's interesting and, and important is that Florida is, I in some ways, is the both the oldest state and the newest state. And by which I mean, first first settlement of Europeans in the, in North America was down there in St. Augustine. But also, like, this was an empty state uh, until World War II. There was, it was the smallest state in, in the South as of 1940. It's now the third largest state in the country. But uh, with all these millions of people who coming coming here, it doesn't have one culture. There isn't an idea, really, of what Florida is. Is it the old South, like Pensacola? Is it the new South, like Jacksonville? Is it Miami, which is like the capital of Latin America? Is it Disney World? Is it the wealthy people uh, who live in Naples or Palm Beach? Is it you know the poor people who live in the center of the state, mostly rural and, and agricultural? Um, and really what it is is that Jimmy, yes, as you mentioned, you married tiki culture, uh, which was dying out by 1970, right? That was a post-war thing. These guys would come back from the Pacific. Um, Hawaii is becoming a state. So we became really interested in Polynesia. And that was, you know, a, an invented thing, too. It wasn't, like, authentic. But it was, it was, a, it was a World War II generation thing. By 1970s, it's, it's basically dead. Although, ironically, around the same time, Disney opens the Polynesian Hotel, um in orlando and that that's kind of like the last of the original tiki palaces so he marries that with redneck culture with uh shrimp boils from low country south carolina with gumbo from from new orleans and with boats and uh and a beach lifestyle tropical drinks he brought tiki outside tiki had always been an indoor you know a dark lounge thing he made it the the beach shack the crab shack, the clam shack, fish shack, whatever you have in your locale. Um, marry that with country music and, and a tropical vibe. Uh, and many of the millions of people who've come to Florida in the last 50 years, and it's been the fastest growing state each of these last five decades, did so seeking the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle. You know, so that now we have, we not only have all the Florida uh, tiki bars and, and, and dive bars, but also a Margaritaville, uh, a Margaritaville retirement resort, right? <laughs> like that, marrying it all together. Um, th- he's kind of he he was important in the politics of Florida. He he and Bob, former governor Bob Graham, founded Save the Manatee in 1979. We had just had a lot of good success with Saving the American Alligator, and uh, and that organization has been very important. He's done tons of work on Everglades conservation, um, but also things like, you know, Salt Life, the the, the brand uh, Salt Life and and Tommy Bahama and uh, and the 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 Conk Republic down in Key West. None of that would happen without Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett was a central figure in, you know, creating this new idea of what a Florida man is like you have an idea of what a Texan is or what a Californian is or what a New Yorker is.
Yeah, there's a really interesting thing here, too, RJ Lehman joining us. I think he tapped into something else that's very American, but people skirt over it because of the branding and the imaging. You know, yeah, it's 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 the country five drunken concerts. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. all that. Here's the thing that he really hit, and he did this as a businessman. He died a billionaire. He had mm -hmm. a brilliant business mind. Work hard and play hard because the thing about it is, is if you're going to live on the beach on Key West, you've got to have some disposable income. If you're mm -hmm. going to be a parrot head and follow him around like the Grateful Dead, and it yeah. was kind of like the more socially acceptable Grateful Dead folks in a lot of ways, they would tour around the parrot head stuff. Yeah, you got to have disposable income for that. Jimmy himself had the great quote. He said, "Look, it's escapism, but it's fifty-fifty. I work hard so I can play hard." That's a very American post-World War II thing. I know we give the boomers a bad rap, but that's kind of the leftover World War II generation thing. Is like, we're going to work really hard. We're going to play really hard. He married that. He got a business empire out of that. Mm -hmm. It's the unspoken thing that's underneath Jimmy Buffett's life that I think is worth exploring a little bit is that he worked hard. He played hard. You got to have disposable income to have fun. But when you have fun, let go. That resonates on a level that you don't have to explain to people. Is that a fair way to put it? I think it is. Yeah. And now, not everybody who follows the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle or wants the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle uh, embodies that, right? I, you see it. You know, if you go, you go to the any local bar here, wasting away in Margaritaville. People sometimes forget the first two words are wasting away. <laughs> right? That's not a great thing. Um, and there's a lot of pickled. Older folk. I mean, it, it is ironic that he died of skin cancer, um, which is obviously a risk here in in the Sunshine State. Um, but he he obviously he 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 romanticized uh, relaxation, but he was also a, a very hardworking man, um, a best-selling author in addition to his musical career, uh, and and had forty albums make the billboard top 200 which is uh that's quite an accomplishment rj lehman he also um something the florida folks are very acutely aware of that some of the just fans that heard the music or probably just know margaritaville not a lot a lot of humanitarian work you mentioned a little bit of it he did a lot of um, manatee stuff like that also a very accomplished pilot had an extensive airplane collection actually donated a couple of amphibious airplanes Things like Irma in the Caribbean, he sent his own planes to go deliver supplies. He did a lot of humanitarian stuff. Mm -hmm. For all the beach laying around, wasting away, singing, <laughs> this is actually a guy who left a pretty good swath of good on top of the music he left. Uh, absolutely. And uh, one of the, the best stories about his being a pilot was uh, when his plane was fired on uh, coming into Negril, Jamaica. They thought he was, he was carrying drugs. Um, and, and he said it was no hard feelings. You know, he, he probably had gotten away with something else in the past. And so he just wrote a song about it called Jamaica Mistaka. <laughs> Love it. Here's the thing about Jimmy, but he's one of those people in the, look, the music industry has a lot of characters in it because you got to be a little half crazy to make it in the first place. He was really one of those guys. You just didn't hear anybody say anything bad about him. You, we mentioned it earlier. He tore it up through July was his last concert. He mm -hmm. actually did a couple spot shows with some of his band backing band guys, just spot things after that. He died of a rare cancer that he had kept for the most part private. A lot of people didn't mm -hmm. really realize it for the last four years. He toured through almost all of it. Yeah. You just don't hear anybody. He's gotten a real push the last 10, 15 years in contemporary country music. A lot of guys have kind of brought him in. He's had a couple hit songs duetting with, you know, people like um, Alan Jackson. Yeah, sure. Yeah. He's had a really good run. 
but he was also a really good guy that you just don't hear anybody say anything bad about Jimmy Buffett, the man. Right. No, I think that's, that's absolutely true. Um, his music's not for everybody. You know, I, I, I understand that someone tells, you know, where to say, I, I, I but it's hard it. to not like it. Like, Margar- even like if you don't like it. If Margaritaville yeah. comes on, you're going to hum along for a minute. I think he had great sense of melody. He had great sense of humor. Um, and, uh, and he experimented, you know, there, there's Margaritaville itself is is a, kind of a groundbreaking song that, uh, you know, to bring in that kind of cal- Calypso uh, uh, Caribbean vibe into what's fundamentally a, a country song, you know, that that was brand new. And, and I think he opened the door for other people uh, to make similar, you know, fusion. Yeah, R.J. Lehman, let's let's circle back to where we started. Um, Jimmy Buffett kind of gave an identity to a state in Florida and of course Key West, which is its own separate thing, really mm-hmm. Florida, but still it's part of the country. He gave a, an identity to kind of that new wave. You already mentioned it. It's one thing to be the growing state. Now Florida is one of the main states. Doesn't matter whether you're talking politically important. It's very politically important, economically important. It's an absolute engine yeah. to the American economy in a lot of ways. Um, it's probably one of the biggest foreign visited states mm-hmm. in the country, along with California and New York. What's the identity of Florida going forward now that it's it's not the up and coming state anymore? It's one of the right. top two, three, four states, and it's probably going to be for the foreseeable future. Yeah. What's the identity now? It's getting more crowded. There's more people. Where yeah. does this morph now? And especially as the boomer generation starts to pass on in the next 10 to 15 years for a lot of us, the, the number one issue is going to be coming to grips with how do you have a sustainable lifestyle in a place where nature um, kind of wants to take it all away. Uh, we are we we are obviously the 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 most hurricane prone state, uh, but that's not the only that's not the only thing that we face. We are second in tornadoes behind Oklahoma. We have serious sinkhole issues. Um, rainy day floods are, are, I mean, uh, sunny day floods are something that you're seeing more and more. Um, so did we build responsibly, uh, to be able to enjoy what you like? I mean, it's, it's interesting because, uh, you go back to his, his work in conservation. A lot of that is bipartisan in Florida, right? Certainly, uh, offshore drilling is a non-starter in this state that, that is, We've seen what happened in Texas and in Louisiana. Um, tourism is still the biggest industry in the state. People do not want oil rigs off there, don't want the risk of a deep water horizon, which did impact you know, some of the panhandle, but thankfully we missed the worst of it. Um, so moving forward, how do you have insurance? How do you have, uh, uh, you know, how do you afford uh, water treatment facilities, which it's very difficult. We're surrounded by water, but we need, you know, dr- clean, drinkable water. Um, those are the challenges of Florida for the next, you know, few decades for the foreseeable future is uh, building uh, smartly and sustainably. Um, that might include tearing down what's already been built because it's not it's not feasible to live in a place that floods every year. Yeah, R.J. Lehman. Okay, my favorite, it's not my favorite Jimmy Buffett song, but it's my favorite Jimmy Buffett title, and there was a bit of a brouhaha back in 99 when it came out, but he did a song called Math Sucks, S-U-K-S, and got a (laughs) bunch of flack for it, but I was like, 
I don't even care if the song's any good or not. I love that because I've never liked math. But give me give me one or two of your Jimmy Buffett songs there and what you think and which ones kind of stick out to you. It can be a Margaritaville, but he had a lot of other good ones. Pyro Looks at 40 is really beloved by a whole generation of people for a lot right. of reasons. But give me one or two of yours. And then, and now that I'm almost 50, it's funny. <laughs> Pirate Looks at 40 now. Uh, I have to look back at 40. Um, yeah, I mean, Come Monday, his first big hit was uh, – you know, big country hit anyway. I think that one touches me a lot. Uh, the the more recent ones that some of the more recent ones that are pretty fun are like he has my gummy just kicked in. <laughs> which is updating updating the Margaritaville vibe for uh, for modern uh, technology. Um, you know, obviously like uh, volcano and and uh, why don't we get drunk? <laughs> which is a you know a, a 2 a.m. favorite uh, in in many Florida bars. I love it. He he's up there with Chris Christopherson on writing smart like uh, titles to songs. I remember Johnny mm-hmm. Cash told the story where he was beefing with uh, Chris Christopherson was beefing with his publishing company. So they said you have to send us a song because it's in your contract. Yeah. And he was mad because they were stealing his song. So he said, let's all get together and steal each other's songs. That's what he submitted to. <laughs> RJ Lehman, good remembrances on this. I Look, we just got to admit, some of this culture stuff comes from places like a Jimmy Buffett. and people. Yeah. Just, but, it, but it taps into something that's already there, and we need to understand these things. I appreciate the time. Let folks know what you got going on. How many follow you until we get you back on? Again, sure. to talk more Florida stuff, buddy. Yep. Uh, LawEconCenter.org is uh, my organization's website. Uh, you can also check us out at Truth on the Market. You can read my my work on insurance, including hurricanes, at uh, Insurance Journal. And uh, yeah, that's that's about it. You can follow me on Twitter at at Ray Lehman, L-E-H-M-A-N-N. Yeah, and that insurance thing, we're doing this. This is a lighter segment where we want to remember Jimmy Buffett. But that insurance thing in Florida, a lot of the Gulf Coast, North Carolina, where I live, it's be, that, that's getting to be a big, big thing. We'll bring you back and talk about that soon. Folks need to know about that. RJ Lehman, always appreciate the time, sir. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to Hurtel. Let's end on a good note. Rotisserie chicken from the grocery store deli. Yes, it's a staple of a lot of people's diets and menus and planning because you can use it for all sorts of other stuff. They're cheap compared to the amount of food you're getting for the price. And let's just be honest, rotisserie chicken's a lot like pizza. Even when it's bad, it's still pretty good, especially compared to not having anything at all. I love rotisserie chicken. We're not food snobs here, although we do a lot of food like Twitter Supper Club. Yes, it's still Twitter Supper Club. And I love my food writing at Yonder and Home and now over on the Substack, hotel.substack.com, free plug there. But the Washington Post has done a taste test of all the rotisserie chickens. Would you like to hear this list? I know I would. All right, bird is the word. Number 10, Harris Teeter. I think that's a little low. I shop at Harris Teeter all the time. Uh, Their stuff's pretty good, but they were number... 10. Number nine, Whole Foods is lemon herbs. So just because it's more expensive, it doesn't get it better. There you go. Food Lion, staple throughout the South and Mid-Atlantic. Food Lion, 
Um, this is what my mom gets for rotisserie chicken. They shop at Food Line in Somersville, West Virginia. How y'all doing? Food Line number eight, Kirkland's. Uh, this is, of course, the Costco in-house brand. We're going to get Brooke Medina back on the program. She is, of course, the uh, defender of all things Costco. They're down at number seven. Number six, Signature Cafe. That's the Safeway brand. Um, of course, more out west, various brands under Safeway. The Signature Cafe traditional is at number six. Wegmans. A lot of people really are brand loyal to Wegmans. Their plain rotisserie chicken comes in five. Members mark. Uh, seasoned. That's the Sam's Club in-house brand. If you're a Sam's Club member, they're number four. Uh, Wesley Farms, BJ Wholesale Club, tied with Sprouts Farmers Market. Sprouts is another store I go to occasionally. They got really good produce and a good meat counter, but them and BJ's Wholesale are tied for third and fourth. Nature's Promise Classic. That's the giant food chain. If you're anywhere near a giant, number one. You food snobs might want to get a hold of something and bite down. It's going to hurt a little bit. Number one rotisserie chicken, Walmart traditional. People loved it. Let's just read a little blurb here. Um, quoting the Washington Post, to be fair, this bird had a significant wing up since the big box brand's traditional variety was clearly, upon inspection, much more heavily seasoned than the others. Discernible bits of rosemary and other herbs flecked its skin and penetrated into the flesh. Yes, that's called cooking uh, for those of you from Logan. Multiple tasters, back to the Washington Post, dug the black pepper notes that were prevalent. This is a parenthetical, but it's funny. He goes, oh, my God, pepper was a sample quote. Back to the quote. One noted, though, that the aggressive seasoning might limit its versatility because it might take over one surmise. It also is higher in calorie and fat. Well, yeah, if it tastes better, it's got more calories and fat. That's common sense, folks. And all the others we sampled, which might have helped it pack some flavor, still overall at one points for having equally moist, dark, and white meat in a prevalent batch and at least in this batch of chickens, elusive poultry flavor. In addition to that garden of herbs, it actually tastes like chicken that was cooked by someone who likes to eat rotisserie chicken, praise one person. Current prices, a Walmart rotisserie chicken is about three pounds, one ounce at $220.28 a pound. That's about $6.97, seven bucks for a meal that'll feed the whole family and or make you several other things. If you want to make some chicken salad, you can also chop this up put it on tacos, burritos, all sorts of various things. Get your rotisserie chicken, folks. Make your life better. We'll link to the whole piece. But if you want that rotisserie chicken, just go to Walmart, according to the Washington Post. That'll do it for her to tell. Thank you so much for all the success. I don't know why this is, but we took a long break. Uh, I had some health stuff going on. I had some family stuff going on. So we didn't do shows for a couple months. So when we came back, we figured the audience would be way down, and it was. I don't know why, but all of a sudden over the last week or so, the numbers have spiked way, way back up. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. We appreciate it. If you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, make sure you're following, subscribing on those platforms. Even if you use multiple different ones, subscribe on the different ones. It also helps us keep track of how you're watching and listening to the program. We can keep track of that way. Don't forget the YouTube channel also has good talk segments in vivid high-definition video if you just really want to watch us. And, of course, the Substack. You can get everything we do from our writing to our media hits to Herd Tells. We're bringing more and more of the archive stuff online there all the time. Herd Tell substack.com completely free to subscribe you want to give us money for free though we will take it but it's free and you'll get all our content there so wherever you are across the street or around the world we hope you're well we hope you are well fed 
and we can't wait to talk to you again next time on Hertel. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.